Welcome to another edition of Chefs and Guests on the Spoon Mob podcast feed. My name's Ray, your host, as always. This week, Chef Matthew Spinner from Bar Oni in Cleveland. He's actually the first non-Columbus chef to come on the podcast, so that was cool. He's somebody that I first learned about him through Ushabu, which was a restaurant in Tremont. It was a Shabu Shabu, so that's basically a hot pot restaurant. But they also did mkase and, and tasting menus, too, as well. And I first learned about them, I think it was going through Instagram and just, I was in like a sushi lane and they kind of popped up some of their posts. I was like, oh shit, there's actually a restaurant in Cleveland that's doing legit sushi. Like I gotta go check that out. Wound up kind of missing out on that, but then he announced that Ushabu was going to be closing. So we went up there a couple times, did a few podcasts way back at the beginning of last year. So if you've never listened to those, make sure you check those out too just on our experience, but it was really cool. He's a really awesome dude. And then he rebranded to Bar Oni. So it's like a neighborhood izakaya bar, which is a Japanese style bar. So they do skewers and yakitori. You know, they still have sake. They have Japanese whiskey, you know, TVs on the back wall now. So it's just kind of a good place to hang and stuff, you know, which he goes into. But hopefully going to have him back on the podcast uh, at some point here in the near future. I had a bunch of questions kind of lined up that we never got to because he's one of those people. People, he is in the similar vein of Kevin Wang, who was on this podcast a couple episodes ago. When you get him on a topic, like it's great. They talk for like 10 minutes and you just kind of go through whatever you're talking about. So we spent most of the time on this episode going through just his his CV, his culinary experience, how he got into the industry, him moving to San Francisco, going overseas, bouncing between Cleveland. Like he worked at Next in Chicago and he gets into that, you know, and then everything going on. Some real cool stories too from his time in San Francisco, a really cool, fascinating Bourdain story at the end, which I won't spoil. So make sure you listen all the way through because that's, that's a pretty awesome story that he's got. But He's just a cool dude, and it's it's an awesome Cleveland spot. They are open, so make sure you check them out. Plan on getting up there in the next couple of weeks and just probably blowing through the menu. We looked at it the other day, and I'm like, I think we're probably going to go really hard on that menu when we go up there and just hang out and have a good time. So I had to chase him for a bit. The podcast starts off. The audio might be like a little rough in spots just because he's just wrapping up, running some errands for the restaurant, grabbing ingredients and stuff. I think at one point there was actually a delivery. So I thought about like cutting some of the video out of it just because you, you could splice it and it'd be like a, a day in the life of Matt Spinner of Baroni throwing it up on YouTube. I might do that. I'm not sure. But it was just cool to talk with him. And we just kind of got up against time. I mean, he's just an interesting dude. And he's really cool. And I have a bunch more questions. So I do plan on getting them back on the podcast at some point. But uh, here is the episode with uh, Matt Spinner of Bar Oni. So how's everything? How's everything going? I mean, it's good, man. You know, it's 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 just like drive your shit. Uh, it is. Oh, and you'll get to see my road rage. That's good. It's 2021, man. It's like the re 2020 so far. I gotcha. Yeah, I know. Hopefully it gets better. I mean, it has, it has, it really doesn't have any, I feel like if it gets somehow worse, I think like the only thing that's worse is like, a, um, if my seatbelt down, so you don't have to do with that dinging for the whole thing. Yeah, you, should, like you a, should probably have that on when you're driving. Don't fucking judge me, bro. I've been in two car accidents in my life and both times I was injured, I had a seatbelt on. I understand that there's a difference between causality and correlation. However, 
You're an outlier uh, to the statistics then. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. And listen, I know as a businessman that we don't bet on the outlier. We bet on the trend. I understand that. Uh, <laughs> um, I feel like if it gets any worse in 2021, it's just going to be like civil war and the Great Depression. I feel like that's the only place we have to go. Like another Great Depression and a civil war. Other than that, it can only get better. Yeah. I mean, I think the next month or so will be a good barometer with now that Biden's in there and everything, we'll see what they can actually get through and what actually can get done. And hopefully that that changes some stuff. Yeah. I mean, we've got that. There's a second round of TPP that we just applied for. So hopefully we can get our hands on that. That was the first round of TPP was immensely helpful. I mean, to be honest with you, it's the only thing that got us through the summer. And I think a, a, a lot of businesses feel the same way. So hopefully there's there's some 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 light at the end of the tunnel from some help from the government there. Because that's kind of the most frustrating thing, right? Is it's, is it's this kind of catch-22 of you're not allowed to be open for regular business and run your business the way you normally would. So you're hamstrung from a revenue standpoint. And also, we're not going to really do anything to help you recoup that revenue or, you know, put any put any of that money in your pocket. And, you know, and the, the little things like, you know, in Ohio with wine, oh, you can sell three to-go cocktails. Like, that is so negligible. That is so incredibly negligible that the like I, I think the whole state when we got locked down went well why don't you just sell your food to go to that idiot and it's like yeah oh that's right because every time you want to go out to eat you just pick it up and bring it back home that's what you do right yeah and then and then there was to go cocktails it was like see now you can just sell to go cocktails duh why you just figure that out and it's like oh my yep mm-hmm, everything's fine to go cocktails and to go food for sure well the sneaky thing too with the ppp loans is a lot of that's attached at least the first round i don't know about the the new thing that they're doing but the first round was attached to how many of your employees that you would bring back in x amount of time otherwise it converted into a loan that like an interest gaining loan so if you had a bigger like restaurant uh yes and no right so that so it's essentially yes correct however you have to remember that the ppp was the paycheck protection loan right Right. So if you if you paid your staff with that money, it, it was really no issue, which is what that money was for. So while while correct, if you went outside of the box and and I don't know expanded with it or bought or bought goods with it, then yeah, of course it was a loan because the idea was to pay your fucking staff. So if you yeah you're right if you didn't pay your staff yeah right it was an interesting loan that ended up that, that you know that you ended up having to pay back but we didn't we straight up paid staff with it uh, which was great I mean. We were able to bring some people back. We were able to get some money in some people's pockets. Uh, it really, it really was was pretty helpful. Now we'll see what forgiveness is going to look like because that still hasn't really taken full effect. You know, we'll we'll see what that. But I think that that kind of the, the guiding light there. I guess the the hope there is that because because our actuator, the bank, so we went through Chase because Chase is the one that's signing off on whether or not it's forgiven. And Chase also just makes 5% straight up and down flat rate on total loans given. They don't really have any incentive to dick us around and not forgive the loan. Yeah, as long as, because in their mind, as, long as they're getting money, like they don't care. That's exactly correct. They're not going to lose money a, on this deal. That's exactly right. They made a flat rate of 5% for every dollar that they gave out in a loan, which is why, unfortunately, you know, Red Robin, Chick-fil-A, the big boys got up first. Because think of it like a fishing tournament, right? Like if it's like first to 100 pounds, right? And you got like a 90-pounder on. You're not going to be like, oh, uh, no, no, no. We'll go catch five 20-pounders, you know, or 25 pounds. Like, no, you're going to reel that 90-pounder in because you're that much closer to making to making your nut on that. So I don't, I don't, for as much disdain as I have for larger corporations fudging their numbers and for and for the, the, the verbiage in that loan, uh, it's hard to blame the banks for giving out those loans to the biggest restaurants first. It's just, it just makes good business. 
so you're from originally, I mean, you're from the Cleveland area, um, Lakewood, right? Kind of born and raised. Uh, yeah. So I grew up split time between Lakewood, which is the first suburb west of Cleveland, and also on a 44 acre grain farm in Ava, which I still own. Yeah, my mom, my mom lives in the, in the, we bought the farmhouse last year. So my mom lives in the farmhouse that we all kind of like grew up in. Oh, okay. So then how did you wind up, you know, getting into kind of cooking? I mean, you know, you're in Lakewood, Cleveland at the time wasn't a big, you know, food. I mean, it's definitely changed a lot over the years to what it is now, where it's become a little bit more of like a food destination. But at the time, it, it really wasn't when you were growing up. So how did you wind up getting into restaurants? Yeah, so I'm kind of like the truest definition of a lifer that there is. Uh, my dad, who was sometimes around, sometimes not, um, managed bars and restaurants, uh, bartended. And my mom put herself, who was a teacher, but always served or bartended as like a backfall um, you know, when, when those things weren't making, weren't making ends meet, she put herself through, uh, college through her bachelor's degree at Kent state, uh, by serving at Higby's downtown, which no longer exists. It's now the Jack casino because her, her father, my grandfather, first generation Polish immigrant looked at her and said, the only reason that women go to college is to meet a husband and you can meet a husband around here. So I'm not paying for you to go to college. So she put herself through college, uh, serving tables and, and tending bar. So I, I mean, I grew up, as a toddler sitting at the end of the bar at, you know, 1 a.m. while my dad's counting the drawer and I'm watching like Monty Python on mute at the white door in Lakewood, you know? <laughs> um, so he was, and he, he, for all his flaws, was a pretty avid cook, um, cooked for every, every, everything we ever had. My dad was kind of the one that made dinner. My mom can like boil some hot dogs or uh, actually makes pretty solid cheesecake nowadays. Um, but I feel like chefs always have like one of two backstories. It's either like we cooked so much in my home and I loved it so much that I that I wanted uh, I wanted to to do that for the rest of my life, or no one in my home could cook for shit. So at a young age, I had to start rifling through cabinets and coolers because I couldn't eat hot dogs one more fucking time. Uh, and I was kind of like a, a a blend of both. You know, I, I saw the industry, saw you know what good food was. My dad was cooking at home, and also literally could not eat hot dogs one more time after my dad left uh, because my mom was just partially so busy working two and three jobs to make ends meet and also just a god awful good. <laughs> so then, you know, you graduate high school and everything. Um, and then I think you started kind of working in different restaurants kind of around the Cleveland area, right? I mean, Rocky River Brewing Company, I think came up, Great Lakes Brewing. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think my, my first gig ever, like in a restaurant, was answering the phones at China Garden in the Marks Plaza in Lakewood. Um, my mom always, you know, when you're a kid, and you're like, Mom, I want to, what was it? We were kids, right? Like, Mom, I want a phone in my room, right? Or like, I want a, I want a TV in my room. And my mom would always say, Honey, you can have anything you want in the whole world. Get a job and buy your goddamn film. <laughs> so I was like, All right, I can, that's like a can do. I'm a very can do kid, right? So I, I, at 14, walked in, there was a sign that said, now hiring, you know, like people can answer the phones. And I was like, I very clearly can answer a phone. I'm 14. I know how to do that. Um, and that was at like, uh, like a to-go Chinese place, you know, a, a, a house of General Tso's chicken, sweet and sour pork and egg rolls. Right. And then one day, one of their guys didn't show up for work and they were like, can you work a fryer? And I was like, I mean, can I throw these frozen egg rolls in this basket, put it down in this hot oil? for like three minutes, put them, pull them up and put them into a bag. I mean, yeah, for sure I can do that. <laughs> and then that kind of, as it always does in the industry, right? Kind of like transforms into, all right, well, can you work like the fried rice station? Like, I mean, 
yeah. And of course, I'm like 15, so I can do literally anything in the whole world. There's nothing that you can't do when you're, you know, that age or invincible. So I said, of course I can. Um, and that was really my first cooking on a line experience. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget that the tickets came in printed in English, but being called out in Mandarin. I very obviously don't speak Mandarin. So these, so these guys are working verbally, just like we do, you know, in, in, in big time high end restaurants, you know, three quail, four duck, six chicken. We chef, three quail, four duck, six chicken is what's going on. And I'm spinning around and having to read the ticket. So I already have lost the jump and rising on time because they're already firing their food. And I'm still kind of one by one, you know, going through it's a beef fried rice large and a chicken fried rice small going through. So I, I learned very, very early on as a sophomore in high school, how to fire food very quickly and how to rise on food uh, very quickly. And then I, and I fell in love with it. I fell in love with the taste of it. I fell in love with the pirate aspect of it. I fell in love with, with everything that cooking on a line is, um, you know, as a kid, as, as arbitrary it is, I, I enjoyed being able to speak plainly, you know, uh, at my at my job and not have to kind of like watch my mouth because I'm a notorious cusser, uh, much to my much to my children's teacher's dismay. <laughs> um, but that was kind of like my first my first experience on the line, and yeah, from there I was just hooked, right? Um, from there, yeah, Rocky River Brewing Company, and they kind of bopped around Cleveland. I really liked brewing companies. Worked at Great Lakes Brewing Company. Um, worked at kind of at Parma Tavern uh, when I lived out in Parma just because rent was cheap out there and it's all I could kind of afford. Did you ever think about culinary school or was that just, you were more interested in just on the job experience? Yeah. So that's, yeah, no. So when I was, so I'm in in high school, right? So I'm, I'm working in high school. My dad's not around. He's kind of gone. My mom kicked him out. I was kind of helping kick down some money for gas and car payments and whatever. And also, you know, maintaining my own, uh, uh, high school natty light lifestyle. Um, I'm playing hockey at the time. I was pretty good at playing hockey. I thought maybe I'd go to college and play hockey. Um, I was going to go to, I was going to go to college and, and, and be an English major. And then I thought about maybe culinary school, but at the time, at the time I'm 18, I'd already been kind of cooking on a line for maybe three years. Uh, so I knew the basics, right? I knew my, because I studied, right? My mom, I think for my 16th or 17th birthday, got me a copy of the professional chef, um, kind of the textbook that we would use at CIA, you know? Okay. And I'm studying, right? And I'm learning on glazes and I'm learning Brunois and I'm learning Chiffonade and I'm kind of like dicking around in this, in my spare time in the kitchens that I'm working in, you know, figuring these things out and running specials. And I learned how to run stocks and learn my knife cuts, learn how to sharpen my knife, kind of learn the, the very nitty gritty basics of it and went to like a CIA freshman pre-orientation thing for those of us thinking about going to the Culinary Institute of America. Uh, coincidentally enough, at Fire Food and Drink, uh, Doug Katz's place in Shaker Square. And I, my question was, did do you have a two-year program? You know, because I don't, I don't want to spend the first two years learning things that I just got paid to learn, mainly because it's like thirty-five or forty grand a year, and we just don't have it. You know, we just don't have that kind of money to be able to throw, to throw out a culinary degree. And at the time, they only had a four-year degree. So for me to to come out of culinary school in debt, minimum a hundred grand, just seemed like not a good deal. Um, I much more looked at it and still do look at cooking for a living as a trade. Uh, so I realized in that moment that I could get paid to learn these things rather than pay to learn these things. And my brother was a plumber. Uh, my uncle is, uh, is a Mason. My grandfather, uh, was a Mason. 
Um, so it was, it was very much like I looked at it like a trade, you know, not, not as, so culinary school was a fleeting idea. Um, and then I realized pretty quickly that that's, that, that, that maybe cooking wasn't for me. Uh, so I was going to go to, I was going to go to the university of Toledo and study, uh, English education with a minor in American lit. Uh, and I was going to get an English. So 18 years old, I pack up and, and move off to play hockey at Toledo and, and, and study English. And while at Toledo, I think as most people who study English realize, uh, it's a real dumb fucking idea. <laughs> uh, I realized that I didn't want to edit copy for a living. Uh, I, I had no desire to write, you know, the next great American novel. I didn't want to be a journalist. And I think my sophomore year, I uh, was a TA and realized that I really didn't like teaching. You know, and I, and I kind of and I kind of realized, like, if I don't like teaching, helping teach 18 year old kids, there's no way in how I'm going to teach elementary school kids or where, you know, where you where you start to make your bones as a teacher. Uh, but I realized that the one through line as I was at Toledo, I was working at like a soul food place, um, which name escapes me. There was a lot of there was a lot of partying going on up there manage like a Papa John's too to like just get money in my pocket. And I realized the through line through my entire life was I was always cooking. Even when I wasn't doing it seriously, I was always cooking professionally. Um so that kind of was very eye opening to me, which I think my mom pointed out. Um, and that's when I realized that that's that's it. That's that's the thing I need to focus on is making a career out of out of this cooking thing. So from there, I mean at some point you go and you stage over overseas, right? The thing about my career is that it's all very crammed in. Um I was a very fast mover. Uh, there's one my career where I was kind of a job jumper, but it's all kind of like quick moving packed in um, to a, a relatively short amount of time. Cause I'm very much the kind of guy that when I see a thing that I want, I just do whatever it takes to get it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm not the guy that's like, Oh, well, I'll wait a year and I'll just kind of like flounder for a while. And then when that thing happens, that'll happen. So I moved home uh, from college. And then that's kind of, that's kind of like um, Great Lakes Brewing Company time. I worked at the Parma Tavern, which is just like a bar in Parma. And I was working day shift, Great Lakes Brewing Company, night shift Parma Tavern, six days a week, 8 a.m. to 2 a.m., sleeping for a couple of hours, taking the bus, because I didn't have a car, taking the bus from Parma uh, to Ohio City, which is probably, uh, uh, I don't know, maybe a a six or seven mile bus ride. There were a couple of days where I fell asleep on the way home, you know, to my night gig, mixed my, missed my bus stop, had to call my night gig and, and apologize for being late because I was at the turnaround. So that was kind of like my first acquaintance with what this industry kind of like really felt like. Yeah. You know, what it felt like to just be, and I was, and I was 20. The grind. You know, and I'm just grinding it out. Exactly. The grind, just grinding it out. Just, just working 60, 70, 80 hour weeks, uh, drinking entirely too much, uh, you know, as we do when we're young. And then I got engaged and my fiance, we met when we were kids. Um, she had moved out to San Francisco and was pursuing a, a career in interior design. And I got engaged and we decided that I would move to San Francisco. We start a life in San Francisco. Uh, got a job at Thirsty Bear Brewing Company, which I think is closing this year, which is such a shame because it's been there for 20 some odd years. And it's a uh, it's an all organic brewing company, but also a Spanish tapas joint because like one of the, the owner, Ron Silverstein is an immigration lawyer by trade opened the place because what he kind of realized was there's a lot of beer that gets drank in Spain, uh, even though we mostly associate it with wine. So that was kind of like my first exposure to Spanish cuisine, to tapas, to paella, to gambas a la plancha. And I really just went full head over heels for Spanish food. 
Um, and while working there, again, working just ungodly hours, uh, we were right next to the Moscone Center in San Francisco, and we had just this burly dining room, this like 160-seat dining room um, with like a, a private, two private dining rooms upstairs, and all of that food came off of the same line, cooked by the same line cooks. So you'd have a Saturday night service where you're going to do 300 in the dining room and have 200-person parties upstairs. We're, we're all cooking the same food for the parties and for a service off the same line with the same group of cooks. And it was just burly, man. I mean, we're cooking in 24. We had like a, like a 30 burner range. We're slamming paellas a la minute, like 12 inches for the floor while cooking 60 inch paellas for parties upstairs. We're loading hot boxes up with like 300 empanadas while crushing the fryer, you know, with empanadas for service. And it just, it was really big and really fun and really, really hard work. Uh, but I, like I said, I fell in love with Spanish food. And it was a point where I looked at my bank account and I was like, huh, I'm, I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay because I'm working all these hours and I have zero time to spend this money because I literally just go to work, wake up, go home, go to work, wake up, go home, which was the end, the end of my first marriage, uh, was, was that job. But for our one year anniversary, we planned a trip to Rome. We were going to go to Rome. Um, and this is obviously post nine 11. So there is no like change the ticket, get the, you know what I mean? Like you bought the ticket. This is back when you like, I don't know, you can still, you can change them nowadays it's a little bit more lax, but back then, because of the way security was, you bought the ticket, you're going or you lose the money. Um, because ticket transferences were seen as kind of like, uh, a security breach. Right. Uh, so I ended up, I ended up going to Rome and while I was over there, I was like, friends of mine were going and I was like, well, let's go to Barcelona. Let's go to Frankfurt. Let's go to, and I just more or less overstayed my tourist visa. Uh, I just kind of ran, I kind of ran from my visa all over Europe for a year or so. <laughs> um, kind of like back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Um, and that was, and you know, like I realized I'm, I was fluent in Spanish and still am and realized that I could kind of stay there wash dishes, you know, shuck gambas, uh, butcher pork, uh, take garbage out, do whatever I needed to do. And that would kind of like facilitate my hotel stay and facilitate my hostel stays. And, and that's, that's kind of how Europe happened. And then there was some back and forth. I came back to San Francisco and then went back, came back to San Francisco. And then it kind of ended with me wanting to work there. And this is post uh, fall of the Euro, right? This is after Greece lied about their GDP and the euro's tanking and there's austerity and i applied for a work visa um because i was pretty sure that if i just like slept on the doorstep of like Mugaritz or albuyi or arzak right like i was pretty sure that if i just like slapped on their doorstep they would let me work there because you know like, you know what i mean i'm you're young and you think that that's how it works you hear those stories and i was pretty sure that i could do it um but the uh the the Ministry of Employment or whatever it was uh, in Spain more or less said to me like we don't have jobs for Spaniards we certainly do not have jobs for Americans so you can so you can leave or we can deport you and I was like you say deport I hear free plane ticket home you have to pay for your ticket back then hold on and they said yeah no that's correct except for you'll never be allowed in Spain ever again. Mm. And I was like, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right, I'll go. Uh, Might like, want to come back one day. Yeah, right. That's exactly right. Uh, so so after bopping around there, you know, at places off La Rambla in Barcelona, and like I said, a little bit in Frankfurt, a little bit in Vienna, a little bit in Rome, 
uh, mostly kind of like nameless, formless, shapeless. There was no like three Michelin star stages. There were no like gaudy, extravagant meals that I remember cooking. It was all, again, just like the grind, the grind, the grind, the grind. It was walk in, take the garbage out, shut the gambas, um, you know, receive the fish, get it on ice and scale it. Um, it was just the, the grind of it all, which is ultimately what I fell in love with and I'm still in love with, you know, um, so came back to San Francisco, uh, reinvested, ready to go, um, wanting to work at another one of our places that we own called Cortez with the executive chef there was, uh, Jen Puccio. And that was a single Michelin star, I believe, um, coming home, got all ready to work at Cortez. And by the time I was ready to, to work there, got everything squared away, Ron, who owned Thirsty Bear Cortez and one other one called Rambos, decided to close Cortez. Uh, so right before I was getting ready to work there, he decided to close Cortez. Um, and Jen Puccio, who's the executive chef there, uh, was pretty fucked off about it. Um, it kind of came as a surprise. It wasn't really her choice. Um, she teamed up with Anna Weinberg from Big Night Entertainment, uh, who owned Marlowe, and they decided to open Park Tavern. And thankfully, um, for absolutely no reason, I have no idea why she decided to hire, decided to hire me. I, it was way out of my league. I think it was just because I very clearly would run through a wall for her. I think that's really, that was like my, my, my like one, like, because up until this point, I was a terrible manager. I was a yeller. I couldn't get my guys to work for me. I was the quintessential loud, angry asshole sous chef who thought that I was going to get uh, my staff to do everything that I needed them to do by just by brute force and yelling at them. Uh, I was <clears throat> probably a human resources nightmare. I had never been taught professionalism. Uh, I had never been taught. Um, actually, that's not true. I have some, I'm sure someone tried to teach it to me. I just, you know, wasn't listening. Um, I had never been taught the ins and the outs of, of working numbers. Um, I, I really was, I was, I was a detriment to my own uh, career. I was drinking entirely too much um, to the point where it almost cost me my job. Uh, and uh, I have no idea to this day why Jen Puccio decided to hire me, but, but through the grace of God, <laughs> she decided to bring me on at Park Tavern. And that was really kind of the most, to that point in my career, everyone always wants to talk about Europe and Europe was fine. Europe was great. Europe taught me what Europe taught me, but more from like uh, understanding food and understanding Spanish food and Italian food and flavor profiles and learning some of the language. And that was great, right? But that does nothing if you don't know how to apply it. So like I said, so Jen Puccio and Anna Weinberg hired me uh, to be the opening sous chef at the Park Tavern. We, I mean, we opened that restaurant. Yeah. Um, from from zero uh, to a to a, a glowing review from the Chronicle, um, and that was up to that point in my career. That was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. Uh, that was that was ninety hour week. Well, seventy five to ninety hour weeks for three months um, during the first thirty days of being open, which is our review period. Um, in most large cities, you know, you get zero to thirty, and on day thirty one, you're open for review. So the first 30 days, you're kind of tuning things in, figuring it out. Um, Jen got walking pneumonia, actually full on pneumonia, now that I think about it, um, to the point where her doctor said to us, like, if she comes to work, you call me and she goes home because if she continues to work with this pneumonia, her health is severely at risk. Uh, she still showed up to work because she is the baddest bitch I've ever met in my entire life. I mean, I've never met anyone, male, female, animal, or otherwise, who is tougher or stronger or smarter than she is. Um, she taught me everything that I know about being tough and strong and smart. Uh, and there was a point in there where there was a night, which isn't a story that I actually ever tell, but I'll tell it to you. There was a night where we got pretty hammered drunk at, at Park Tavern. Uh, I think we were closed. Might have been a Sunday. And I went to dinner over at, at Marlowe, which was our sister restaurant. And I was stone cold blackout. 
Um, and I acted an absolute fool inside of Marlowe. I mean, I sent food back and I was rude and I got in an argument with my girlfriend at the time. And I was an absolute scene, just a scene and a mess. Um, I have no idea why she didn't fire me. I absolutely deserve to get fired. I had no business uh, acting the way that I acted. Um, but Jen, thankfully, was a merciful chef, not a just chef. <laughs> um, and kept me on and, and more or less said to me, like, Spinner, like, the only reason you still have a fucking job is because of how hard you work and because of the quality of the food that you produce. Uh, so if I'm you for the next however many months, like, just shut up, cook food. And like, I don't want to hear your name. Like, I don't want to hear your name in any negative capacity from anybody in this building at all, or you're gone. Um, and that really was kind of like that come to Jesus moment for me where I was like, man, like I've been coasting through this industry and I use the term coasting obviously pretty loosely. Um, but I've been coasting through this industry resting on the fact that like I work harder than everybody else in the building and I cook pretty good food, but it turns out that's not enough. Yeah. You reach, you know, it turns out, it turns out that that's, yeah, that that's, that that's not enough anymore. I have to be a leader, I have to be respectable. I have to be professional. I have to take myself seriously. I have to take the shop seriously. I have to take my career seriously. I'm representing people that are larger than me, whose careers are similarly on the line. And, you know, this industry is fickle and all it takes is, is one thing like that for the wrong person to see or be involved. And it's all, and it's all gone. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was, that was really a turning point in, in my career. And I, I'm forever grateful for Jen for not shit canning me because I really believe that if she would have shit canned me in that moment, I probably would have just gone on the bender to end all benders. And I really don't know where I would have been. Right. Um, it wasn't like an alcoholism thing. It was just like a wildly out of control. What do I do now? Kind of 20 year old sous chef. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. You know, it was, it was the, that, that part of the industry that, that get off work at 1am drink till three, you know, buy a bag of Coke, do it till four, sleep till seven, get up at nine thirty, be to work by 10, you know, just like stinking, like sweating poor choices and make your day work like that. That was, that was, that was creeping up on me and starting to take a hold. And I, and I'm forever grateful for Jen, um, for giving me the opportunity to write the ship and also kind of making it very clear that that's not, that's not how things should be done even though that is the way things are done pretty frequently. So then from there, I mean, I think they get nominated for like a James Beard award. Yeah, we did. And we absolutely did. Yeah. Yeah. The, the big things there were, yeah, the, yeah, right. Exactly. So three-star review, uh, from Michael Bauer, uh, which was really big. That was really great. It said, it said something to the effect of, um, park tavern is the Balthazar of the West, which was huge. I mean, that was, I mean, Balthazar is an absolute fucking institution. Yeah. So that was huge. Um, there are two stories in there that are pretty funny about how I almost fucked that up. Um, uh, which I, which I will tell momentarily. Um, yeah. And then we, we got a beard nod for best new restaurant, which is a nationwide award, which is huge. And then we realized that grant had opened next that same year. Mm -hmm. And there was just like this collective groan. Like there's no, yeah. You just there's see no who you're stacked way. against. There's like, no oh. way. There's, you know what I mean? Like you just cool. And you have that hope. You have that hope, but you're like, oh, fuck it. Maybe they'll right. give it to yeah, him next year. <laughs> That's exactly, yeah. We were like, we, well, what's funny is, is if we would have opened like, like two months later, we would have been up for the next year. You know what I mean? Oh, it was okay. just like, yeah. we, we knew what it, we, we knew what it was going to be, but it was still great. It was still a huge honor. We were still very jacked about it. Um, Jen absolutely deserved it. The work that she put into that place and Anna, oh my God, I've never seen an owner work harder. Anna Weinberg is an absolute fucking beast. I mean, just, she, she would just show up every day looking like a supermodel and working like a, 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 a fucking draft horse. And it was just like a sight to behold, to watch those two women 
put this thing together from nothing and to watch the whole team. I mean, there was there there were just days where like I couldn't get anything accomplished at exterior to the restaurant. And they're like, give it, give it to the girls in the office. And they're like, they're like helping me pay my credit cards, not like with money, but like calling in to make the payments and like getting my BMV shit squared away. And like, there was just like, it was just such this like big team working towards the same goal. That was just absolutely incredible there. Um, inside of that first 30 days where it was, uh, Dave Wasm and I, who was the CDC, there were a lot of days where we kind of like stood in like the boiler room that was off the main dining room in tears almost I like seriously contemplating what would happen if we pulled the Ansel system because we were just so absolutely exhausted because we didn't want the restaurant to close. You know what I mean? But like maybe for like two days. Yeah. Just you needed like a break. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's exactly yeah. right. Like it wasn't like we wanted to do anything detrimental to the restaurant. Absolutely. Now we work too hard, but like, could we just not have to be here on Tuesday? Could that like, is that like a thing <laughs> that's like possible? Um, inside of there, I notoriously made Jonathan Waxman wait like 47 minutes, uh, for a lamb chop that I forgot to fire. Uh, I was on the grill. I was working the grill at a wood fire oven and I just completely whiffed on a ticket, which happens. Yeah. It, uh, it happens. You, you, you whiff and you know, even the best of them, it, it happens. And I kept calling it back and call it back and telling Jenna it was going to be this time. And the, and the grill was full and cold and the chop was ice cold. And I didn't want to send it out because I knew which table it was going to. And we refired the table three times and it was just an absolute massacre. And I'm just getting bulldogged the whole time. And as I finally rise on the, on the lamb chop for Waxman, I think Florence was at the table, uh, Tyler Florence. Um, I just hear from, from the, from the past, I hear, Ladies and gentlemen, the world's longest lab job. I'd like to I'd like to congratulate our sous chef Matt Spinner on somehow taking 47 minutes to cook one singular lamb chop. Congratulations, Matt. That's the longest lamb chop I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that was that was great. Uh, and then there was also like uh, we had like a like a wood fired twice baked potato scenario that was actually pretty pretty baller. Um, and I, I was having issues with the wood fire and it like, it, w- it was dying and it wouldn't catch and the wood wasn't seasoned properly. And I kind of like went, called an audible on it, um, and sent it out to a table that we knew was Michael Bauer, the, uh, the San Francisco Chronicle food critic. Uh, and I sent out this, uh, really good looking twice baked potato. It's in like a square lodge cast iron with like mashers on top and melted cheese and house sours. It was pretty baller for as baller as twice baked potato can get stone fucking cold in the middle <laughs> like stone like like i like i pulled it out of the walk-in and torched cheese on top and i have no idea how it happened like i literally think that i just picked the wrong one that i had been working and sent out the wrong one i mean and these things happen when you're on that many hours you're under that much stress like mistakes are going to happen i will just never ever in my career forget because like as things go out to a critic like that we are dissecting them as they come back in the dish bit. You know, the, the, the directive is if it gets cleared from, say it was a table 34, it gets cleared from table 34 and it sits on the prep table in the back until all chefs and ownership have thoroughly inspected it. Because we want to see, was food left on the plate because it was too much food? Was food left on the plate because it was bad? Was the plate cleared? Was, we want to kind of like have an idea as much as we can for what just happened to that table because obviously we can't just walk out and say- Did you like it? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, yeah, exactly right. Exactly. And it comes back and I get called back to the to the prep kitchen. I'm just like, oh no, this is this is not this is not it's like it's like being a kid and your mom says, wait till your dad gets home, and then your dad gets home, and you're just this imminent dread 
is this sinking feeling in your chest? And chef goes, stick your finger in that. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm going to stick my finger in that. Like, it's hot. She goes, Spinner, stick your fucking finger in that potato. And I stick it in, and it's just the coldest potato I've ever felt in my life. And I simultaneously shrunk to be about six inches tall, and my heart was, like, in my left foot. Uh, It was atrocious. So, you know, luckily, that got overlooked and we got a three-star review. It was very glowing. It was very nice. Thank goodness. Um, but those kind of like those two things taught me the importance of consistency. Yeah. You know, because what Chef said to me, she was like, why would you ever call an audible on me? You know, what she said to me was, Matt, those are my decisions to make. If you're having an issue with something that's happening on your station, you tell me and I can make the decision to see, to help see you through that negative scenario. It's my job to help see you through. You took the whole thing and put it on your own shoulders and you made decisions that you weren't prepared to make in a stage of your career where you had no business making those decisions. And that was very eye-opening to me. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's something that I say to my cooks all the time. You know, when we get, when we get a good review or a bad review, it doesn't say, line cook Steve Johnson did an excellent job cooking my steak, right? Right. Yeah. It says, you know, Chef Jen Puccio, Chef Matt Spinner, Chef whoever steak was this, it was that, you know, so that ultimately, you know, there's always enough, there's always enough um, praise to go around when there's a great review, but ultimately when there's a piss poor review, it rests right on, you know, my name's in print, her name's in print, Hannah's name is in print, you know, and her point was, let that be on my shoulders, because I'm the one who decided to be in this position, you know, and that's something I tell my line cooks all the time, like, if you're struggling with something, if it's not right, like, don't send it out, just send it to me, send it to me and 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 ask, you know, how do I fix this? What do I do? And if, if I don't know how, I'll figure out a way to get something else to the table, I'll go do a shimmy shake dance, I'll go let them know that we ran out and we're so sorry, but we're working on this, like, hell, I'll go lie to a table. I'll lie straight to a table's face and tell them that this happened or that happened. And we'll get them leaving happy um, rather than having, you know, people who have no business making the decision, making the decision and that. But those are just two stories that were very formative in my cooking career from Park Tavern. And then shortly after that, uh, my girlfriend was having a pretty rough go of it in San Francisco, couldn't find a job, uh, was fighting a pretty deep depression, um, said, I, I want to move back to Cleveland. So then you wind up back in Cleveland. Yeah. So I said to myself, my entire life, I have only ever made decisions to benefit my career. And this, this is going to be the one time this is going to be where I, I love her. We're in love. We're going to spend the rest of our lives together. Um, I'm going to move back to Cleveland to support her needs, her goals, her career. Mm-hmm. Um, move back to Cleveland. We get pregnant. Uh, we're li- I'm, I took a job at uh, Barcento working with Adam Lambert, who now owns uh, Ohio City Provisions. Um, we're living in Ohio City. We get pregnant. We have a baby. Uh, relationship's not going so well. She ends up going exterior to the relationship that falls apart. Now I'm single, alone, back in Cleveland, working at Cento, barely making ends meet, and my bills just double. <laughs> So from there, you wind up, I mean, at some point you wind up going to Chicago, right? Yeah, right. So that turn in Cleveland included fire, food, and drink um, under Dougie again, um, where I I was online working there when he got his beard knot. Um, I got subsequently let go from there because I was a shithead. I just was like not in a good uh, emotional space. Um, I was in, the, I think a lot of times when guys move back to their hometown from being away, they have this idea that they're like greater than, you know, you see in a lot of younger cooks and I certainly was guilty of it where you think like, well, I worked in San Francisco and I staged at Michelin star restaurants in San Francisco and I 
you know, was a part of getting a beard nod for best new restaurant nationwide. Yeah. So you like, kind of believe your own people. hype a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And you, and you carry that with you. And that's very much where I was. Um, and instead of, instead of applying those lessons that I, that Jen taught me, I, I wasn't in an emotional space to do that. So I just was very selfish. Uh, I was very rude. I was very much not a team player to management. I was very much a team player to the, to the cooks that were on the line with me. You know what I mean? I did my best to teach those guys how to sharpen their knives and how to run stocks and how to, you know what I mean? How to, how to do all those things properly. And it was very important to me that they were learning and growing. I just couldn't play nice with management. You know, I just thought that I was better than the chefs that were on the line. And, you know, I, I came to learn in that time that we always say like in, in, in day-to-day life, there's a time and a place, you know, and in, in the restaurant industry, I've come to believe that there's a time and a title, you know, like regardless of, regardless of what you think of that person that's above you, they're above you. You know, like regardless of what you think of that person that's telling you what to do, like there's a reason why they're there and whether or not you agree with that reason, they are still in fact there and your opinion of the universe doesn't change the universe. Um, so Dougie let me go and I and I, I was like, all right, I need a breather. So I took kind of like a summer off and I worked as a sous chef at a country club on uh, the far east side in Aurora. And that was, there are stories from that place that don't need to get told. Um, but my daughter, you know, so we had our daughter and I, and I essentially just made a money play. You know, I just made a money play. Like I'm going to, I'm going to step back and like make fucking corn dogs and shit at like the, the, the tent hole or whatever they called it. You know what I mean? On the turn. And, you know, it paid me way too much money to do almost nothing, but I had to be at work at six in the morning, but I was home by four or five at night and it gave me time to spend with my daughter. Um, but I just wasn't happy. Um, and then from there I took a job, another kind of uh, a job at a catering company, same deal, right? Like, I'm just going to make food. I'm just going to put my head down and just make food. And like, it is what it is. I'll be a production facility in and of myself, pay the bills and have some time to spend with my daughter. But it just was not fulfilled creatively. Um, and I was kind of like poking around on Indeed, poking around wherever. Uh, I was dating a girl at the time who lived in Cleveland, but was from Chicago. We had bandied around the idea of going to Chicago. And then lo and behold, I see that Next is looking for CDs, is looking for... Um, uh, CDPs, Chef de Partis. And I said, well, there's something serendipitous, serendipitous about that, right? Like we lost, we lost our, uh, beard nod, you know, to next, I gotta go put my phone in. Sorry. There's something serendipitous, serendipitous about that. We lost our beard nod at our tavern to next. Um, I threw my hat in the ring, threw my resume in, uh, Mike Fatacletti got back to me and said, cool. Can you come stage next weekend? To which I responded, uh, probably not. Because uh, I live in Cleveland, but let's work this thing out. Um, and we worked it out, and I, I went and staged and was very ready to be wowed by the ins and outs of the Alinea group mm-hmm. and came to realize pretty quickly that it's a bunch of dudes cooking food like it's always been a bunch of dudes cooking, cooking food. food. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that, like, even, even on like my stage in three Michelin star restaurants, I was very, but I was in my like, early 20s, so I was very like, wow, like, you got tweezers. What is that? Like an offset spatula? Yo, you're just going to pass everything around on stainless steel pass trays? Yo, you know what I mean? And then I, I got to the action. I was like, oh shit, like, I can, I can do this. I know, like, I can, I can wee chef and I can get my prep work done and I can show up early and I can stay late and I can be ready for service and I can be of service to the guys around me. And I, you know what I mean? And I was like, all right. So I killed the stage um, and, and got the call up to the big leagues and got offered the CDP position at next uh, and started on the God. What, I don't even remember what menu it was. There's the menu before bistro steakhouse, maybe. I don't remember. 
Um, but I, but I started on the end of a menu and then worked, worked through bistro. Uh, so started it next. And that was kind of like the next, the next chapter in my career. And then for the, so you weren't there very long though, right? Or were you there? No, man, I was at next for like maybe two months. But I, was you just not feeling it or was it just, I. So full disclosure, I think that if I was in my early twenties in, in Chicago, I would have loved every bit about it. Living in Chicago is fucking annoying. Like, sorry to all my people who still live there. I still do have people that live there. I love the city to visit. Chicago's fucking stupid. Chicago is everything that's annoying about living in a big city. Waiting in line, public transportation, everything's ridiculously expensive, which is whatever. I mean, I lived in big cities. It's not, I wasn't some like country bumpkin like, oh man, this rent's too expensive. I'm never going to make this work. I'm like, listen, like, I'll eat ramen noodles all fucking day. You know what I mean? Like, that's totally fine. But no, but Chicago is all of the annoying things about living in a big city to me with none of the conveniences. Living in San Francisco, every little neighborhood has like two tie joints and a noodle shop and a 4am burger joint and a laundromat. And it's all within like eight blocks to the point where people would come to San Francisco or I'd have tourists in from out of town. They'd ask me like, hey, how do I get to this place in this different neighborhood? And I'd be like, I don't fucking know. I don't go there. Like I live where I live and I know where those things are. But like, I don't like, I don't, why would I ever go there? You know, sure, we went to places to eat and went to places to drink and to do things. But it's like, I'm not like, I don't like, I'm not like spending my time because why would I need to? Because everything that I need is in this eight to 20 block radius. Chicago, everything is 45 goddamn minutes. Everything, everything. You take, you take, you take, uh, you know what I mean? You take the L, 45 minutes. Ride your bike, 45 minutes. Drive a car, 45 minutes. Magically, you walk, still 45 minutes. No idea how it works. I still am, I still believe that there's like a rip in the space time continuum somewhere like around Randolph. Makes no sense to me. Um, everything is just 45 minutes. So that kind of sucked. Uh, my relationship with the girl that I was dating was deteriorating pretty rapidly, um, as they tend to do in this industry. And just the space inside that building was not conducive to me being the human being that I wanted to be. And that's not a knock on Grant, and it's not a knock on anyone in that building. It's not a knock on the group. The things that they expected me to do and the way that they expected me to act and the way that people talk to each other inside of that building in order for me to partake in would have required a regression in my emotional and professional growth that I was not willing to provide. It was kind of probably more militaristic in a way because, I mean, he comes from the French Laundry. So, I mean, probably set up like I would imagine a little bit like that. But then it's also probably pretty competitive too as well because everybody's looking at like, this is going to be on kind of like my resume and this is a known place kind of thing too. Yeah, I mean, there. yes, there's certainly that part of it, which wasn't something that I was unaccustomed to. You know, it, it just the the culture there at the time, again, not a knock, it just, and it's just one dude who worked there for two months. You know what I mean? So take it with a grain of salt, right? Because who the fuck am I? You know what I mean? Like, I don't have Michelin stars. I'm not fucking Grant. I'm not Dave. You know what I mean? Like, who am I? Um, but it it was way too much bulldogging and not enough teamwork. Okay. For me, you know, not that guys didn't work together, but it just, well, I realized pretty quickly that if I was going to be successful in that building, to your point, I was going to have to just be hyper-competitive and hyper-focused on my own career and like damn the torpedoes. And that's just not what I was looking for at that point in my life and my career. You know, I was looking for somewhere to convalesce. I was looking, and that, and that sounds like I was looking for like uh, somewhere to coast. And that's not at all what I mean. I was looking for somewhere to hit it really hard with food, but to feel like somebody had my back. You know, the overwhelming feeling in that building, at least for me, was nobody had my back. I was on my own. You know, the thing that the thing that really pushed me to bounce was post service one day. Dave Barron 
called a staff meeting and looked every single one of us straight in the face and said, if you don't want to fucking be here and you're not going to do, you know, whatever it is. And in my head, I'm like, I want to be here and I'm doing everything that's asked of me every single day. Like, do I have failures? Of course I do. Have I gambled and lost? Of course I have. We all have failures as line cooks, as chefs, as captains, as major D's. We all do. That's there's no one in this industry who wins every day. It's just it's it's that's that's not realistic to expect that. So he said, if you don't want to be here, then you can fucking go because we've done this without all of you before. We've done this by ourselves, and we can do it without all of you in this room right now again. And that to me just rung very like, okay, then I'll go. You know, then that's okay. Then that's and that's your choice, and that's totally okay. And there's no hard feelings. You know what I mean? To this day, I love Dave. I love Dave. I think Dave's doing wonderful things out west. Like. And he probably wouldn't even remember saying that. You know what I mean? I don't think it was like a breaking point for him. He probably wouldn't even remember saying that. He certainly, you know what I mean? Like barely remembers me when I see him from time to time because I was just a peon there. I was a nobody and that's completely okay. I never pretended to be anything more. And when we talk about that space, I don't pretend to be anything more uh, than that when I was there. Um, But that was just, again, it was one of those, I often talk about my career and I explain to other line folks when thinking about their career as it's kind of a roadmap. And before we had Google Maps, before we had MapQuest, right, when you got directions from somebody, right, what was the last thing that always told you on those directions? If you've reached such and such a point, you've gone too far. You have gone too far. That's exactly right. And I and I was like, oh, my God, like, I, I think I've gone too far. Like, I think I've just seen what the thing that I don't want in this industry is. And that doesn't make it wrong. It doesn't make it wrong. Just clearly, it doesn't because, I mean, they're working with a Michelin star. You know what I mean? Like, they're doing great work up there. Ed's doing an incredible job. Uh, running that kitchen and excellent food is coming out of that kitchen and guys are still there right now that were there when I was there. So clearly they're doing something right. Um, I just think it was it was incongruous with me as a person and there's literally nothing wrong with that. So from there, I texted one of my best friends who's still one of my best friends in the whole world, Matt Danko, who I met in my brief time at Greenhouse Cavern. And I said, hey man, I need some advice, dad. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I don't know what to do. And he goes, yeah, man, sorry. And he didn't know that I was the next. He said, he said, sorry, man, I wish I could help you, but I'm in Chicago. And I was like, oh, because we had lost touch. You know what I mean? He left the greenhouse. I was in my own world. Um, and I was like, all right, well, what are you, what are you, what are you, what are you doing? Like, do you, do you, do you need like a cook or something? And he's like, well, I'm opening this place called Sink Swim with the Scott Law Group. Um, and I already have my sous chef picked out. But listen, honestly, man, like I would love to have you on board. I would love to have you come help me open this thing. It would be, you know, nice to have you know, a, a friendly face and it would be nice to catch up again and, and rebuild this friendship and cook some food together. Um, and I was like, yeah. So we got coffee at some like hipster vegan coffee joint. And he offered me like, I don't know, like 1150 an hour to come cook on the line, which you'd smile and grin, but that was $3 more an hour than I was making at next. Next, we made 865 an hour and worked, you know, 80 hour weeks and walked home with $800 paychecks. Like cool, cool, cool. Um, which is what it is, you know? So we opened Think Swim. And that went pretty well for a while, um, but it was a really tough go of it to open kind of like a hot out there center of the plate seafood place in the middle of a budding but not there yet Logan Square uh, with a group who was used to opening bars and printing money. In probably, I mean, Chicago is also kind of like a steakhouse town too. I think that was certainly a battle that we fought. I think you're exactly right. That was certainly a battle that we fought. Um, And that's another kind of the thing that I learned about living in Chicago and working in Chicago is Chicago is seen by guys like me uh, and, you know, growing up in Cleveland or Kenosha or wherever you grow up and kind of like Podunk Midwest. Chicago is kind of like the shining city on the hill. And you get there and you're like, wait, it's it's still fucking cheese fries and hamburgers and braised short ribs and pork belly. We do all that stuff at home. Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, right. It's exactly for sure. That's exactly right. You're like, this is, and it's not even like that much better. It's like, yeah, the space might be nicer, but like we do better burgers than this in Cleveland. We, you know, then that not than all places. But you understand what I'm saying? Um, so for me, you know, so Sink Swim started started it started to take a left turn. Danko decided that he was wasn't long for the world there. Um, he was going to move on to go be the CDC at Grace, which subsequently happened. He asked me if I wanted to come. I said, nah, man, I'm fucking moving home. So I, I took my first executive chef job at a little wine bar called Press in Cleveland, um, and I moved home. And then you're there, and then you wound up at, uh, I'm probably going to butcher that. Is it Ushabu? Ushabu? How do you? That's it, dude. You okay. nailed it. Yay, one in a row. <laughs> yeah, so you shot. So I was at Press, and I literally the point of going to Press was to get the words executive chef on my resume. Um, it never, I never belonged there. It never, uh, I, I was pushing way too hard for what they wanted it to be. And it was very clear and the ownership didn't really want to invest rightfully. So to be honest with you, like it was a good business decision on their point. They don't want to invest in like new tables and, and, and hire a whole new service staff and give me what it would take to run a nice restaurant there. Um, they wanted it to be like a bar with food, like a wine bar with food. And that's just not where I wanted to be. So we parted on really good terms. And right now it's a place that, that they've reconcepted called high and dry. And it's like, um, it's like, uh, you got like duck pin bowling and video games and sports. And like, I, we drink there like two, pre COVID we drank there like two or three times a week. The staff's great. The general manager, Mark Bailey is an incredible human being. I'm good friends with all the guys who I used to work for. Like it's a great space. Now they made the absolute right decision. I had no business being in that space, but it was a foot in the door and, and it was a way, you know, to get the words executive chef on my resume. And yeah. And then from there, um, I came to Ushabu mainly because a good friend of mine was the general manager here, wasn't super in- impressed with the opening executive chef that he brought on. And he'd been made open maybe a month and a half uh, and, and called me up and asked if I would be willing to. And I said, look, man, I don't know anything about Japanese food. I've never cooked Asian food. And I have no desire to just be another random white dude from the Midwest slapping wasabi on shit and calling it Japanese. However, I also am highly employable. You know what I mean? And like, he kind of like go do whatever it is that I want to do. So I'm like, fine, we'll have a meeting. We'll have a meeting with the, with the then uh, primary sole proprietor and my brother, who's a plumber. I think I mentioned that earlier, taught me a really good lesson about bidding a job that you don't necessarily want. And that lesson is bid three times what it's worth because one of two things will happen. They will look at you in the face very nicely, right? And say, thank you very much for your time. We'll be in touch. You'll stand up, walk away from the table, close Never the door. Never hear from him again. Guy. That's exactly right. And you'll now you will not have to do that job. Or they will say, okay, yeah, that sounds great. And you'll make three times as much what you should have made to do a job that you really didn't want to do in the first right. place. Yeah. Right. Pretty solid advice. That's 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 the keeper. So I walked into this meeting and I'm just like shooting from the fucking hip. I'm like, yo, if we're gonna do this, like I'm walking in and I'm firing everybody and I'm bringing my squad in and we're doing this and I'm remodeling the kitchen and I need this and I need that. And we're doing tasting menus and like the GCA is going to skyrocket and whatever. And I'm just like, like, whatever I want. You know what I mean? Like just shit that I would never say in like a job interview, you know, and we get to the end of it. And the owner, who's now my business partner, Howey, looked at me and said, oh, yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. Can you start on Tuesday? (laughs) And I'm like, fuck, that's yes, I guess I can start on Tuesday, Tuesday. Right. And this is like, this is like a, this is like a Wednesday. So it's like six days from now. Tuesday was Valentine's day. Yeah. And they had three full turns booked. So they shit can the executive chef, uh, which I feel like was very mutual. Cause like it didn't sound like he was very happy to Do be there either. either. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, so they come to terms. He leaves. I call my, like my, my lifer sous chef who'd worked for me at several different restaurants. His name's Ollie, an incredible guy. 
Um, I called him and I was like, yo, we're, we're, we're going to work at a Japanese restaurant. Get your shit. Let's go. Cause he was unemployed as well. He was like, Japanese for fucking what? I'm like, I, listen, I don't know. I'll explain it to you. I'm coming to pick you up. We're going to get, we're going to get a drink. Let's go. I'll tell you all about it. When we get there. So we roll in like sight unseen on Valentine's day, prep an entire menu that had already, we didn't write, right. prep an entire menu and just play service. Just like at the end of service, like the whole service staff was like, oh my God, whatever. We're like, yeah, okay, cool. Let's go. So we kind of flew under the radar and rode the menu as was, which we referred to as vaguely Asian because it was vaguely Asian. Uh, there was like, there was like, like, uh, I don't know, some like grilled steak dish with like seven different oils on it. And like some like two, it was like U10 day pack, day boat, your dry pack, day boat scallop dish, like two giant scallops, for like $14. I'm just like, how in the hell are you making money on this? Um, so we re, we, but we let that ride for a month while we flew into the radar. And Ali and I, he's a very intelligent individual. Um, and I really liked the anthropological, sociological history of food. We kind of like dug into it and realized that we could write menus almost in the next fashion that changed every three or four months. Because that's the one thing I really loved about Next. I really loved the idea that if you're, and this is kind of what they preached, and I believe to this day, that if you reach a certain level of, of proficiency in your cookery, it takes you about four months to be proficient at a skill in doing it every day. Not to master it. Not to be incredible at it, not to be world renowned for it. Yeah, but it just to be becomes it. like second second nature almost. That's exactly right. Whether that's baking bread or making pasta or making sushi or running demi glace, in three or four months, you have seen every variable on a day to day basis that that task has to offer, so that you become proficient enough at it to add it to your repertoire. And that really is the thing that I loved about Next was we were just consistently adding things to our repertoire and just making ourselves. And that's one of the one regret that I have, not the one regret, but one of the regrets I have about not jumping it out there was I think I would be a much better cook, a much better chef had I stuck that out. Mm -hmm. But I mean, you, know, you, you still were able to take something away from it with the whole like concept of everything. So it. I took a ton away from it. I took much, I, that was a very lopsided deal. I took much more away from next than I gave, you know, um, that was a very lopsided deal. Um, that being said, it's not like they needed anything that I had. So that's completely fine. Um, so what we realized was when it comes to ingredients, when it comes to cookery, I could hand you a Japanese cookbook and you could make recipes out of that cookbook and they could taste exactly like what that cookbook said they should taste like and present that way. That doesn't make you a Japanese chef. And that may not even mean that you just made Japanese food. You just ex execute a recipe really well. That's yeah, that's exactly right. Right. What we realized was when we, cause we sat down, I'm Spanish, French, Polish, German, Swiss. I'm very Alpine, right. With a little Spaniard thrown in there. Um, and that like Polish, German, Swiss is, is all from the same kind of like region of the Alps. Um, I realized that when I was a kid, there was always like fermenting cabbage underneath the sink. There was always brown mustard in the fridge. There was always dill and sour cream. There was always pop. There were always ingredients, caraway seeds, always ingredients um, that were just a part of my life growing up, that you were just in the cupboard and you put them in things. And that's how we made things. That's how my grandmother made things taste like they were from us, you know? And Ali is Ukrainian, so we share a very similar Eastern European uh, kind of background. And we realize, you realize that about him as well. And we were like, all right, so let's not read cookbooks. Let's not read Japanese cookbooks. Let's not even buy a Japanese cookbook. Let's read historical texts. Let's read anthropological texts. Let's read sociological texts. Let's read poetry. Let's read stories. Let's read uh, 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 
history passed down from one generation understand to the culture so you can understand the cuisine kind of thing that's exactly correct because culture is what birthed the cuisine right you know something as simple as wine pairing what's the first rule of wine pairing if it grows together it goes together right um so something as simple as that shows how the culture of a space births the food not vice versa, right? So we realized that what we wanted to do, and I kind of had it as, 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 as a stroke of inspiration, was let's do this, right? The very first next menu was like 18 whatever the fuck France, and it was an homage to Escoffier. And that, that book is really great. Um, I was like, all right, let's start doing time and a place cookery. Let's do time and a place because that's the only way we're going to be able to narrow it down. The only way we're going to be able to narrow it down from Japanese food writ large to an executable menu is to pick that time and a place. Because if I said to you, tell me about American food, probably the first thing you would ask me is where? Yeah. Do you want to right? talk about pilgrims? Do you want to talk that's about... Yeah. Exactly, not even just time. Now, I don't even think you'd go time. I think you'd go, do you want to talk about the Southwest? Do you want to talk about the Pacific Northwest? Do you want to talk about the yeah, Southeast? Do you want to talk about the Midwest? Do you want, that's exactly right. I think you'd go regionality off rip because that that is just so distinctly different, right? Uh, and then maybe you'd start talking about time, right? Are we talking about, are we talking about New Mexico in 1853? Or are we talking about Manhattan in 1989? Because those are both distinctly American experiences, and they're both... Vastly different. Vastly different. That's exactly right. So we realized that the way we were going to accomplish, and one of the goals we had from inception, was giving Cleveland a look at Japanese food that it had never seen or contemplated. Because one thing that I heard when I first told people that I was taking over a Japanese restaurant, and I still hear it to this day, it's a running joke in my family and in our building is, oh, it's sushi. Oh, you run a Japanese restaurant? Oh, it's sushi then. Oh, it's sushi. Oh, got it. It's sushi. Or, oh, it's like hibachi? Uh, yeah, like, don't hibachi even the other one. Don't even get me fucking started on that. Steve Aoki's dad really shit the bet on that. Um, but we realized that that what we wanted to give was a different look and, and, and provide a reverence and a respect and appreciation for culture and cuisine so that we can accomplish two things. First and foremost, accomplish not being culture vulture, right? It was very, it is very important to me and has been important to me since the inception of this building that I'm in right now, that we are not profiteering off of the reappropriation of a culture that is not mine. That is a driving force behind decisions we make in this building every single day. You will not see yum yum sauce. You will not see my ploy Thai chili sauce. You will not see things that are distinctly American, non-Japanese um, in order to pad my profit margin. Like you won't see those things because those aren't, that to me, those things don't appreciate a culture that is not mine. So that's first and foremost was not, was was making sure we avoid being seen as re reappropriators and culture vultures. Um, to the point where before we launched our first menu, we called every Japanese person we knew and made them sit down and eat Japanese food every Sunday for like a month. Yeah, didn't you didn't you actually reach out to like a, a market in Japan too, doing research? So so that's two stories mixed together, right? So yes, we worked with Skiji Fish Market uh, when we were running our when we were running our Osaka menu and when we were when we were running our Edomaizushi sushi menu. We worked directly with Skiji, and I had a guy on ground in Skiji who I would call, and he put together what we what we together deemed the omakase box. And I would tell him how many how many American dollars I had to spend on fish, right? And he would just literally walk around Skiji. Um, and he worked for the importer that we worked with. He'd walk around Skiji Fish Market and put together a box for me 
wrap it in that day's newspaper from Tokyo and overnight it's us. So that's one story. Yes, that absolutely happened. That was cool as shit. Wildly expensive. And God, I made no money doing that. I made zero money doing that. That cost us so much money to do, but it was cooler than shit, man. Man, was it cool. Um, but for one of the menus, and this is really the one that, that, that I'm the most proud of. It's the, my, there, and it's, and it's, it's an accomplishment that I'm most proud of that got zero fucking press. Zero. Usually the way it goes. Not one thing. Not one word, not 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 a blog post, not nothing, nothing at all. We did an Ainu menu, A-I-N-U. The Ainu people are the native Japanese tribe to the island of Japan. They predate Hondo Japanese, which would be Japanese people that came through China, through Korea, across the Sea of Japan, and populated Japan as we know it today, right? Um, predating Hondo Japanese, there was the Ryukyuan Empire in the south which is now Okinawa, right? And there was the Ainu tribes that populated um, mainland Japan, as well as more populated on the northernmost islands of Hokkaido, as well as Kamchatka, which is the, northern, or the southernmost peninsula of Russia, right? And this is Japanese food in its soul and core, unlike Japanese food you would ever see. This is Japanese food. There is no soybean. There is no miso. There is no soy sauce. There is no wasabi. There is no sashimi. There is no sushi. There is no teppanyaki. This is this is to Japanese food what Native American food is to American food, right? And Hon the Hondo Japanese um, during Imperial Japan through the 1700s into the 1800s committed the same disgusting cultural genocide uh, as well as real physical murderous genocide um, upon visited uh, uh, this upon the Ainu people just the same way that Manifest Destiny in America visited violence, cultural genocide, and, and actual murderous genocide uh, on American Indians, right upon the, the the first the First Nation tribes of America. We put together an Ainu menu because that really struck a chord with me, right? So, in putting together that Ainu menu, one of the first things that we did was we traced back mitochondrial DNA all the way back, followed the mitochondrial DNA line. We didn't do, obviously, the research, right? We weren't, you know, taking DNA samples, right? But we followed the path back to Tibet and followed the migrational pattern of the Ainu people from Tibet through Asia, up through Russia, down through Kamchatka, across the Sea of Japan, into Hokkaido, right? And put together what that walk would have looked like over that ice bridge that existed at the time. You know what I mean? Because it was a walk. There weren't really boats. Um, and then we started to put together. And then we started from there. We got to like, OK, that's how we got to Hokkaido. From there, we pretty quickly realized that there are no recipes, right? We can't do the things that we normally do uh, because these people have been systemically eradicated, both culturally as well as physically. From the history books. Off. That's exactly right. Yeah. Up until about the 1980s, which I'll get to. Um, so we reached out to, so i literally just started researching, researching, not in books, because even the books that I found were whitewashed. Um, I reached out to a professor, uh, who had done some studies at the Ohio State University. And she was at, uh, at the time at University of Arkansas, Little Rock, who had done a documentary about the Ainu people that I found on YouTube, reached out to her and said, do you have any connections still? Could I reach out? Could you help translate? And she was an absolute godsend. I mean, she was everything to us for that project. She helped us translate from English to Japanese, from Japanese to written Ainu or spoken Ainu. We put together a questionnaire and a leaflet that she got delivered by a post to Ainu villages in Hokkaido with questions like, if you could serve uh, someone from the West one dish of Ainu origins to express what Ainu cuisine means to you, what would that dish be? 
uh, questions like if you could have one thing that's been taken away from you by the Imperial Japanese back, what would that be? Um, and we got these questionnaires back and put together this menu. I wrote uh, an ebook to accompany the tasting menu that you followed along course by course, and it was written in the style of Ainu poetry and his and history. So you were learning about the Ainu people as you're eating these dishes and how they related to everyday life. We worked with local foragers because we realized that where uh, Hokkaido is, so Sapporo is the same. Uh, I always get latitude and longitude mixed up, so forgive me here. I'm clearly not a geographer. But Sapporo is the same plot in a map, whatever, east to west, whatever that is, right? That one. Uh, the same plot point on a map as Cleveland is. So in Hokkaido, they have things like sugar maples. They have things like ramps. They have things like uh, 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 trout streams uh, and steelhead runs. And they hunt rabbits and they hunt deer. And it, it's very similar to kind of my growing up in the Midwest, right? Like, I'm like, yeah, and there was just this very guttural connection from me to the Ainu people, though, even though I obviously am not a part of that culture. There just was this very guttural connection there. So we worked with local foragers and and did our best to use the ingredients to recreate. I mean, we, to the point, man, where we turned off all the gas in the kitchen and we cooked only wood and charcoal the way you would if you were cooking in an Ainu home in the center of the home, um, you know, roasting your fish or making your soup or whatever that would be. Uh, I rigged up with my brother, again, who's a plumber, we rigged up a way to be able to hang pots over the hearth to be able to, you know, do hot pot with, with wood fire and charcoal fire. And man, was it cool. Um, and we reached out to the Ainu community in, in America, the Ainu diaspora, and had some people come in from the Pacific Northwest on opening night to eat Ainu food the way that we prepared it to uh, both kind of rubber stamp it, you know what I mean, and give the okay, but also to take part in, in uh, a very small microscopic renaissance of Ainu culture in this 24-seat restaurant in Cleveland. You know, and for six months when we ran that menu, dude, I mean this sincerely, did the research and it is absolutely true. We were the only restaurant in the entire world cooking strictly Ainu cuisine um, from uh, strictly Ainu recipes. You do realize, like, I don't know if it if it dawns on you or not, but everything that you did for that and like all the other menus, like that's PhD level dissertation like shit that you went through. I mean, I don't. I never realized that it was only ever my goal to to present food and culture in a way that got people as excited about it as I get about it. And the things that get me excited are absolutely how things taste and how things look. And, and that's that's the end result. But like making food that tastes good is my job. That's what I do. That's the that's the barrier to entry for me to be able to ask for the salary that I ask for. Right. So if I can't do that then I need to revert back and just work on work on my seasoning, work on my acid balance. Or, you know what I mean? And those things, I hope I've got pretty well nailed down, right? But it's those things that get me so excited, that get me so excited to bring that to people. People got excited about it, man. And that's, that's that. Even the Osaka menu, man, like that was super cool to talk to the place. We, we, we email corresponded with the place in Osaka, the restaurant that first used the word shabu shabu. Right, because we're, we were a shabu shabu restaurant, right? A hot pot restaurant that did tasting menus. Shabu shabu came over with Chinese immigrants post World War II uh, into Osaka, and and there was one we can be pinpointed to like two or three restaurants, but the, the one that we found seemed the most legit for the claim to fame. And we were like, tell us about it. You know what I mean? Tell us about what you guys do. Tell us about what we should be doing. Just, and like things like that that just it both solidifies the idea that we are doing things the correct way, and it then gives me the freedom. 
right? It gives me the freedom to then do whatever I want to do. And the way that I look at that is, is think about in your mind right now, think about a painting or a sculpture that you know by Pablo Picasso. I bet it's Cubist. I bet maybe it's, 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 from, uh, it's from an abstract period, right? One thing that people often forget about Picasso is that he was, for a time, the single greatest portrait painter in the world. He mastered classicism. Yeah, he did He mastered normal. classicism, yeah. right? That's exactly right. And it was only then did he feel free enough to begin branching out. So to me, it was so important, still is to this day, that we master that classicism, that we master that portrait painting, that we master that that original shabu shabu, and then we can start to do some things with it, right? And then we can start to put a spin on it. Because because if we're not mastering the, the basal art of the thing, then we're just pissing in the wind. And sure, it might taste good, and there's nothing wrong with that. There are a lot of restaurants out there that do that, and they make food that tastes really good. That tastes really good. And if that's your goal, to make food that tastes really good, and that's it, then more power to you. That's great. That's a, that's, I'm not, I am absolutely not saying that that is not the goal of this career. That is absolutely the goal of this career. You know what I mean? Like That is not a less than point. But you can, there's also range to do something else, something more too as well. Well, for me, there had to be something more or else I was going to burn out. There had to be something more or else I was just going to be a spatula or a pair of tweezers or, or a French top or another appliance used to produce food. You know, if, if, I, if I didn't satisfy that, that constant nagging desire to learn every day, then I was at risk of burning out. And the only reason that I, I've got, I mean, this year will be my 20th year in this industry, man. And the only reason I've got 20 years in this industry is because I'm never satiated. I'm always learning every day. I mean, whether it's whether it's learning about music or learning about art or learning about architecture or learning about ceramics or learning about culture, learning about history, learning about sociology or learning about food, whatever it is, it's the only thing that keeps this career sustainable for me. Because when we came up there, I first learned about uh, Ushabu through some Instagram posts, basically when you're doing the sushi thing. And I was like, oh, wow, there's an actual restaurant in Cleveland that has good sushi. I got to mark that down. So then we came up there before, you know, because you announced that you were closing or switching concepts. Um, but you had the foresight, I guess, with, you know, you had all these other plans and COVID happens and then you switch and you're like, this isn't going to work. We got to do, we got to switch to something else. So talk a little bit about that. Cause like you switched to bar Oni, which is kind of to go more so, you know, than what you were doing. Yeah. So Oni had always been a concept. Oni's original concept was called Sei Studio, right? The original concept for Oni, which, which in Japanese means essentially like the house of sake, right? Seishu is a legal term we use to, to describe sake. It means clear liquor. Um, we like in America, you'd say to describe alcohol, you'd say spirits, spirits liquor isn't a term. You know what I mean? Um, in Japan, we would say Seishuya to denote sake. So that was always the concept that we were looking for. We were looking to grow. We were looking at different neighborhoods, a little west, a little south, a little east. Um, and it never really came to fruition. Uh, lease negotiations always fizzled out or the build out was always a little too pricey for us or whatever, whatever it was. Um, but that was always kind of a thing. And then COVID, I mean, shut us down. I mean, there was, there are people, I think, talk about like, when you hear people talk about COVID in the industry, I think very often it's glazed over and how, how glazed over how jarring um, and stark and awful it was in the state of Ohio to get shut straight down and everywhere else too and everywhere else, right? Because we went from knowing that there was a thing, right, to being completely shuttered, can't do business, that's it, right? Um, and we pretty quickly realized that, A, Seishuyu was still a good concept, so we still had that. B, 
everything at Ushabu was communal seating. I mean, there were nights where you, if you came in as a two-top, you'd sit across the table from another two-top of stranger. And that was part of the charm of Ushabu was there were people that met here that are best friends that come back, you know, to this space from time to time to celebrate the fact that that's where they met. You know what I mean? There are people here that business, that spark business relationships that are now thriving businesses in Cleveland. That was kind of the charm of Ushabu. It was very un-American, right? To us, that was no longer plausible. I could no longer put two strangers next to each other or across from each other when we're trying to curb uh, a thing that is transmitted through uh, aerosol. You know, simultaneously, there were a lot of times during the course of Ushabu where I really didn't see the future further than maybe six months or the next menu, you know, and, and it was a lot of like, is this work? Is this going to work? You know, I'll be totally 100 with you. 19 was an abysmal year for us. We produced a lot of great food. We made almost no money. Um, it was a really, really abysmal year for us um, through some fault of my own, um, through some marketing issues and just kind of like through the natural ebb and flow of like we weren't the shiny new toy in the box anymore, you know, um, Notoriously, the third year of a restaurant is always kind of when you slump. That's kind of like when you see what you're made of. Um, but we realized during that where we took a week off, we got shut down and just had like the wool. I mean, there were every single day we were on Zoom calls with each other because we realized off rip that that was going to be the safest thing to do. You know what I mean? We were thinking about that even before they were, they were a thing. Um, drinking bottles of whiskey, getting hammered, drowning our sorrows, <laughs> talking about, you know, what we're going to do to make this thing work. And I said, you know, what about the Izakaya concept? Because we can make it more to go and that'll work. Um, we can also just make it more approachable. And to be honest with you, one of the misconceptions about Oni is that it's built to be a pickup and to go space. It's not. It's not at all. Yes, we do pick up and to go. Um, we're not linked in with any delivery services. We will this month in February. Um, what it's built to be is a, is like a comfort zone. It's built to be a place where you can get a $2 beer and a couple $3 chicken skewers and sit far enough away from people uh, with good circulation and UV lights in the ducts and whatever, right? In the safest space, we can make it and not have to think about food in the way that, for example, I provoked your thoughts with the item. Sit down, spend a couple bucks, eat some really delicious, authentic yakitori, drink like a $2 yellow beer or a $5 Sapporo or some nice whiskey and just zone out and like let the world just be like that's what it's built to be it's built to be a, a still japanese just all of those things that i talked about still exist we did t i mean we imported a fucking ten thousand dollar gas yakitori girl from fucking tokyo that i had to get a variance from because the state of ohio had never seen one before like it's still us you know what i mean like it's still we're still we're still us it's not like we're like yes hello japanese food we'd like to phone some in um it's it's, it's still us right but it's us in a way that is very cognizant of what the community needs. And to be honest with you, the biggest pivot is we were always a destination restaurant when we were Ushabu. We're a neighborhood bar. You know, there were nights at Ushabu where we did zero, bro. There were nights where we did zero covers, where we came in, set the lineup, didn't have any tasting menus on the books, stood around and did zero covers and, and read books and tested techniques and whatever, but, did, but hung goose eggs, right? Because nobody was coming in from the suburbs or from Columbus or from wherever. You know what I mean? There was nothing going on downtown, no shows, no whatever. So we were Deadsville, USA. Um, we then that's due large in part because we were an unattainable goal, an unattainable thing for the neighborhood. Because the neighborhood looked at us and they were like, I'm not fucking going there. That's like $100 for me to eat. You know, I'm not going there on a Wednesday night. It's ridiculous. I'll go get a burger or something, you know? So a large part of what we're doing at Oni 
is to still accomplish all of the same goals and give different looks at Japanese food and do the research and do all of those things, but to make it to where you can just be walking by on your way home and be like, you know what, sure, I'd love a beer. Pop in, get a beer, get an order gyoza, drop 10 bucks and be on your way, you know? And I think also the, the, the elephant in the room in our industry is this recession that is absolutely assuredly coming behind this pandemic. I mean, we are going to see, I hope it's not as bad as 2008, but we're going to see another recession trailing right behind this pandemic. I don't know that we're going to bounce back. Hopefully the Biden administration can really do some work to curb that, um, like, like the Obama administration did in 2008, but that was still dark times for us in 08. And just from a very point blank, red and black point of view, bars did pretty okay during the recession. Destination restaurants took a not big so fucking hit. That's exactly right. So for us, it was like, well, do we want to be here? Because then we had the conversation, do we just close up your shop? Our lease, full disclosure, our lease was, was coming up around COVID in July, July of 20, or at least what about So we could have just closed shop and bounced, you know, and done something somewhere else. But we really doubled down on Tremont as a neighborhood, especially after Mike left, especially after Mike Simon pulled Lolita and, and sold Lola, you know, or closed Lola and sold Lolita. We're like, who's here? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you, you, we've still got Zach over Parallax doing great. That's been there 20 years. Fahrenheit's doing okay. That's been there, I don't know, 15 years now. But it's like, you see people kind of leaving the neighborhood and it's not like what it once was. We were like, no, we, this neighborhood's been too good to us. It's done too well by us. We're not okay with just leaving it and leaving some uh, another empty storefront in Cleveland to not be filled. So we, we doubled down uh, on the shabby space and on a fucking shoestring budget, <laughs> turned this thing over to be borrowed. Well, then you double down again because now, I mean, just recently you launched the Italian concept, uh, Conforti. For sure, the Italian concept, is, the Italian concept is again from that same ethos of we love this neighborhood, we love this city, and we want to give people who are having a really dog shit time throughout COVID as many looks on cool stuff in a safe way, in a fun way, and in a relatively affordable way as possible. Like it's, I'm not saying that it's like altruistic and that we're just out here running a fucking soup kitchen. Like clearly I've got to turn a profit. But I think that a lot of people in the neighborhood and in the city at large and in cities all across America are asking themselves one question and one question only, what sells and how do we get people to buy it? We are asking ourselves, what could we give? What could be cool? How could we give people, you know, Oni at home when we did the New Year's Eve thing where I'm selling a5 BMS 12 Wagyu butchered to go with cooking instructions and sauces and hand grated wasabi. You know what I mean? Like, how do we give you that cool stuff at home? How do we both stay top of mind? You know, for my industry folks listening, like, how do we stay top of mind? How do we not lose our market share? How do we continue to be to be uh, revenue generating, right? But also, how do we pivot and move and pivot and move and pivot and move and continue to give people new fun looks on food because for me that's how we get through this that's how i've always gotten through my career that's how i've been successful is i've never been afraid to learn and grow and do something different you know and that was kind of the benefit of ushabu was the one constant ushabu which you're if you came one month and then came the next month you're probably not going to get the same dish and even when we run tasting menus you could come two days in a row and not get the same tasting menu you might see the same one or two things but you're not going to get the same 13 courses or the same seven courses or whatever you pick and that's something that we were really excited about that we really liked um, Cleveland kind of hated that, but what do you mean? What do you do? So we got, uh, I got like you know, a handful of questions that we ask everybody, sure, let's go. and then um, then we'll get you out of here so you can get back to running uh, some restaurants and stuff. Yeah, dude, I got to put some chicken on a stick, and I got to make some lasagna. Yeah. Um, who was the biggest influence on your cooking career thus far? Would you say Jen Puccio, hands down? And I don't even know if she knows it. No, hopefully she does now. Uh, what's the one kitchen item, not a knife, that you can't live without? Towels, yeah. 
Okay. I, why you say uh, hey? I've gotten different answers. I've gotten spoons. I've gotten so towels. Okay. I mean, yeah, spoons are cool, but I can put sauce on a plate without a spoon. I'm not doing nothing without towels. I can't clean. I can't move hot stuff. What's the one Cleveland restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own? Oh, fuck. It's like they're all like closed now. Um, for what? You got to give me a little bit more than that. Flying through Cleveland, plane got delayed. They're stuck for a night. You know, you're, they reach out to you and you're like, ah, oh, we're not open tonight. It's a Monday. LJ Shanghai, 100%. LJ, dude, LJ rules. It's like a, it's a couple who had, they're from Shanghai. They're, they're both Chinese. He cooks, she runs the front of the house. They opened like a restaurant because they had enough money to put, and they just like thought it would be like a fun thing to have a restaurant and do like Shanghai's food for people. It's just run food for people. And they're just like packed every day. And the owner, LJ, who's become a friend has looked at me and been like, Matt, we are so busy. Why are all these people here? I never wanted to work this hard. <laughs> I'm like, well, LJ, your food is that good. Like it just is. They do Xiaolong Bao that's very good. They do like really traditional Sichuan food that you can't get anywhere else. I would say go to LJ. It's and it's like it's the size of like a bus stop, and it's so good. I mean, we eat there probably four times a month. Okay, awesome. I'll definitely check it out. Um, bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant that you want to go to. Uh, bucket list travel destination is Hokkaido. Um, specifically, like during the fall or winter, I really want to go fish Hokkaido and hunt Hokkaido and hike Hokkaido. Uh, bucket list restaurant. Noma when they're in Mexico. Okay. Yeah, that shit is just so cool. That shit is just so fucking cool. I mean, Renee is just is just a force to be reckoned with first and foremost, and is like most things that are right in the world right now are being done by Renee and that team. Um, but also, like, at, as someone with a ridiculous respect for culture and doing it the right way, to watch what he and the team can do in a space that the only reason they're there is because they fell in love with it and love with the people and love with the food and want to honor that food and do the best by it as they can do as well by it as they can. is just a, a, a sight to behold. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working. Oh shit. All right. That's a story. Uh, hold on. Well, one of them is recently. It literally one of them happened like a month ago. And the only reason that comes to me is because I, when it happened, I looked at Dave, uh, who's running the bar with me at the time. And I said to him, this is literally the wildest shit that has ever happened to me during service in the history of my life. So behind, on our back bar, we have what I would say is probably, I don't know, two, four, six, maybe an eight foot. I'll swing you around just so you can see it a little bit. Uh, we have like an eight foot this shelf right here. Yeah. That big one, right? Um, I was running the front of the house. Dave was running the back. And one of the straps that held that shelf uh, to, to like the joists that it sits up on, mm-hmm broke and that entire shelf which had i don't know probably somewhere in the neighborhood with eight thousand dollars worth of booze on it as well as a bunch of crystal stemware and racks glasses and whatever on saturday night at 8 30 during like a very like our busiest saturday um of covid fell directly on me during service and it was the most broken glass i've ever seen in my entire career uh, i somehow managed to save like like the McAllen 25 and the Hibiki 21. Important shit. Like, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. And luckily, like, all it wasn't the entire, like, it was only one or two rare bottles on it. Uh, but it was like all of our glassware shattered to the point where I was like, um, I don't know what I'm going to put drinks in for the rest of the night. <laughs> it was, no, I mean, luckily I had some backup downstairs, but it, that was absolutely, I mean, like, the whole thing just came down on me. And I just, and I remember in that moment thinking that, like, like, I had two choices. Like I'm either just going to work through this or I'm just going to freak out. 
And I believe my exact words were when the whole thing fell over, like I had the bottles in my arms, like I'm holding them like it's my two-year-old. You know what I mean? It's the, my world is literally just like shattering around me. I, Dave comes out, he's looking at me, and I just look at him, I go, oh, cool, super cool. Like this is exactly what would happen in 2020. <laughs> that was wild. Uh, I also almost uh, once got uh, hit in the head by a giant Bihong cleaver uh, wielded by a small Chinese man. So when I was 16, I was working at that Chinese restaurant. There was a really cute girl that worked there named Winnie. Uh, Winnie drove. I didn't drive. And Winnie drove me home sometimes. And one time she drove me home. We, you know, like, we didn't, like, do anything, right? But, like, we, like, for sure, like, held hands. Like, maybe we kissed once or twice, right? And Joey, this little crazy dude who worked there, was, like, her uncle or, I don't know, cousin or something, found out about it. And I uh, was on the line. I just got done making, like, a third pan or heating up, like, a third pan of wonton soup. You know, I was putting it in the steam well, you know? And all I see is Joey coming running down. It's like a shotgun restaurant, right? He just comes running down from the back door with a V-hung, a giant cleaver in his hand, screaming, Thassany, Thassany. And there's someone in front of him, like, trying to prevent him, right? And he's very clearly screaming at me, right? And I look at one of the delivery drivers, and I'm like, what does that mean? And he goes, Thassany means he's going to kill you. <laughs> and he's, like, running at me with a V-hung. And, he, like, he slips the dude who was holding him back, starts running directly at me. And I just, like, chucked the third pan of hot wonton soup at the floor. I think I got it on his ankles. And I just ran out the front door, and I never came back. Food or, uh, food or drink, guilty pleasure. I know most chefs don't drink, so. Um, let's see. I don't really have like a drink guilty pleasure because there's nothing that I'm like. Although like Diet Coke, I guess would count because I'm a fucking slut for Diet Coke. <laughs> I like I, I don't know why. I just like if there's like a, like a 12 pack of Diet Coke at a party, like I'm going to drink 11 of them. And then I'll probably drink the 12th and pretend like I didn't. Um, That's like the one thing you have in common with Donald Trump. You guys like Diet Coke. Yeah, that's true for sure. Also, that like we both probably sleep with his daughter. <laughs> um, and then food. Let's see, food guilty pleasure. All right, so there's. I don't know if you have them down there, but around here there's like um, it's kind of like a Wawa, like in in Jersey and PA. It's called Sheets. Oh, we just yeah, we just got one. I forget where they just built the Sheets. Yo, there is not like, and this is like it's super guilty pleasure because like I also like am relatively like fit minded and health minded, and I work out and I coach CrossFit and go to gym. But, like, I would be lying to you if I told you that I didn't, like, shame eat sheets in my truck at, like, 2 a.m. from time to time after, like, a really rough service. And it's never, like, one thing. You know what I mean? Because it's all, like, it's all good, but it's all terrible. Uh, yeah, like, shame eating sheets in my truck at, like, 2 a.m. is for sure. Like, that's about as guilty, guilty pleasure food as it gets because I literally feel shame and guilt. <laughs> <laughs> and then every time I do it, it's almost like it's like when I used to drink too much. Like, I'll do it and I'll work out the next day and I'll feel like crap. I'm like, God, I'm never doing that again. And then, like, three months later, I'm just, like, crushing, like, mozzarella sticks dipped in ranch dressing, like, hating my life. What's uh, what's the favorite, like, dish, the favorite thing that you've ever cooked or created? The one thing that stands out to you most, like, your aha moment. Like, this is where, like, I got it. No. So, yeah, like, I won't even use anything that's mine because, like, that's fucking, like, I'm not trying to suck my own dick. Um, but when I was in Barcelona, I learned how to remake, like, cause I had already made paella before we only ever did it on a range. I learned how to make paella, uh, on like the coast right by Barceloneta on like a driftwood fire, like on the beach with like seafood that came right from the ocean right there. And that was so dope. Like that was so cool. Just like being right on the coast and like starting the fire with the driftwood and tending the fire and like resting the paella pan directly on top of the fire and needing to like take it off and put it back on and turn it like like 
you know what I mean? Like tending to it like a baby. That was so fucking cool. And I don't even remember what went in it or what it tasted like. I just remember this feeling of like overwhelming joy and like just this feeling of like there is absolutely no reason in the world why why someone who has made the decisions in his life that I have made and done the things that I had done in my life um, should be on a beach in Barcelona in the late summer eating paella with friends, crushing white wine and like having a bonfire on the beach like that. Like that's probably my favorite food experience ever. And then last question, uh, what's your favorite Anthony Bourdain episode moment scene? Oh, that's a, that's a story too. So I once got cut out. Out of, I once got cut out of uh, the layover. Which episode? San Francisco episode where we go to Mr. Bing's and uh, Comstock and uh, Sam's. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It goes to the, the, that's the all night burger place. Yeah. Burger and pizza place. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Sam's, which is next to like my all night place. It's now closed. It's called Vietnam. Yeah. Cause he's, he's drunk as shit <laughs> during that old time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's drunk as, but yeah. Yeah, because we were wrecking fucking chartreuse and fernet at fucking Mr. Bing's. So were you were you at the end of the bar or where were I was at so so Jeff and John and the dudes who own Comstock were at Absinthe before. I knew them from Absinthe because one of my partners in crime was the CDC at Absinthe before we worked together. So I was like Comstock was like my local. Comstock and Romola were like my locals because they're both in North Beach uh, and obviously Park Chatter is in North Beach. So we went over, Jen and I went to go get a drink. And her, she met her husband there and her husband was like, there's like camera crews here. This is stupid. We're leaving. And I was like, well, like my whole night was like, like we're off tomorrow. And I was planning on like drinking a bunch of, they serve whiskey shots in little cowboy boots. They're glass. So that's like a Comstock thing. Right. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, I'm gonna go drink a couple of boots and like drink a couple of anchor steams and get fucking drunk. Like I don't care what's going on over there or whatever. So we're over there and I walk in and Jeff's Hollinger is being interviewed and Johnny's at the end of the bar. And it's like this whole thing. And I'm just very much just like, could I fucking get yours, please? Like, I understand because I didn't know it was Tony. Do you know what I mean? I didn't really know who it was. Yeah. So during the interview, Jeff's like, Jeff comes out of the end of the bar and he's like, yo, we're going to go to my office. We used to call Mr. Bing's Jeff's office. Jeff would be like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to go. I'm going to go over to my office. Right. And it was Mr. Bing's, which was a little Chinese owned bar next door where we played like liar's dice for shots. And if you won, you got a free shot. If you lost, you paid double for the shot. Like one of those, you know what I mean? Like one of those kind of places, right? Yeah, yeah. So we go over to Mr. Bing's and I was already half hammered and they're over there talking and I'm like in a couple of scenes and I was particularly and predictably pretty vulgar. Not like, not like misogynistically vulgar, but like, you know, every other word was fuck and asshole and bitch. And, you know, I'm drunken in my 20s and whatever. And I and they and they were and then like Danny Bowen shows up and they're going to go to Vietnam. And Danny Bowen and I, whether he remembers this or not, that motherfucker, we always fought over the same table at Vietnam because we always got there around the same time. And there were times that he would walk in and me and my people would be at the table in the back of Vietnam. Or I would walk in here, his people would be at the same table in the back of Vietnam, and I would always be like, oh, Danny Bowen, got my fucking table. Um, and I hope he felt the same way about when I had his table. Uh-huh. Uh, but they're talking about like going to Vietnam, and I, I, I didn't do this. I don't think that I, I don't think that I had my had my thumb on the scale at all, but I just remember a conversation being like, dude, like once this goes on TV, we're never going to be able to get a fucking table at Vietnam. Like ever. Because like everyone's just gonna go to fucking Vietnam and we're never gonna be able to eat. And the thing about Vietnam was it was open till 4 a.m. It was a faux joint. It was a, it was a Vietnamese faux joint and it was open to like 4 a.m. And they'd serve you like Ching Tao in like plastic bread cups until 4 a.m. Like they had like a, like, um, 
a Hillary Duff like pink phone and that was like a house phone and it was like maybe like 12 seats. Uh, it was a great, great place since closed. Um, so they decided to go to Sam's and, 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 and all that kind of happened. And I remember being in it and there's cameras and Tony and I are talking and shooting the shit. We do a shot of short truth together. Jeff and, and I and, and Tony do a shot of Burnett together, whatever. So I remember being in it. We get the air date. I invite all my friends over to my fucking like two bedroom apartment in Knob Hill that I paid way too much money for. And I'm like, yo, I'm on TV. I'm on TV. I'm with Tony Bourdain. This is a big deal. We're all going to watch this. My shit's going to change. You know what I mean? Like, I'm on it, right? We say side thing. We're all there. It gets to the point. And he goes to like, you know, I forget where he goes. I think, I think he goes to um, like Swan Oyster Depot with Roland Passot. Uh, I don't remember what he does. Right? He goes like, like all these places. They go to the like, Tonga Room, I think. Tonga Room, yeah. Him and Constantino go to Tonga Room, I think. Right, yeah, for sure. Uh, and, then, and then it comes to like the part where I'm like, oh, here I am. Here I am. And there are just like a series of like hard cuts. And I'm like, no, no way. And my friends are like, oh, yeah, Spinner, you did fucking great. You were definitely in that episode. I'm so glad we're here watching you. Yeah, you did super great. Why are we here again? I'm like, you guys, I swear to God I was in it. I swear to God I was in that thing. So that to this day is, is very much my it's, it's hard for me to, to watch that episode without getting a little teary eyed. Uh, just obviously like in, in, you know what I mean? In, in, in post Tony hanging himself. Yeah. Uh, but that's very, very easily my favorite, my favorite episode. That's, that's awesome story. Uh, where can people find you? Social media website, plug all your stuff. Oh, social media is at roast based killer, which is exactly how you would spell ghost based killer. Only roast and based. You're welcome. Step. So, my partner, Dave, his Instagram is old dirty custard. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We're those dudes. Um, that's only because Swanye West was already taken. <laughs> <laughs> We're so mad. I was already taken. Uh, yeah, roastbasekilla underscores. Um, bar-oni.com is the Oni website. Um, everything else is just Matthew Spinner on, on, the, on the, the Facebook that I'm never on. Uh, definitely follow me. It's, a, it's not a lot of, it's not a lot of food posts, but there's certainly a lot of like everyday life posts and getting through COVID posts and like, you know, what it takes to be sane posts. So uh, give, give us a follow along there. You guys are open what, what Wednesday through Sunday? Wednesday through Sunday, six to six to now it's ten, but six to bar close Wednesday through Sunday. Just walk in, no reservations needed. Walk in, no no reservations. We don't fuck with no reservations. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, obviously, we went way over time. I have way more questions for you for another time, so I'll save those and. All, I told you, dude. I got like a I got I got a lifetime of shit that I crammed into twenty years. I know, I know, but I got. I mean, you got more. Oh, the Grubhub thing. I. Oh, fuck Grubhub. Yeah, Grubhub. see, Grubhub, but, see we don't have time for this, Grubhub. so that's why. Yo. Oh, my God. <laughs> Listen, here, we do have time for this. One fucking story. One story about Grubhub. All right, all right. So, so a dude who worked for me or with me or some shit in Chicago is now, like, the regional Grubhub manager or some shit, because, like, that's where his career went, hits me up uh, like on IG. And is like, would you like, ever consider becoming part of Grubhub? And I tell the whole story. I'm like, absolutely not, which whatever. And I'm like, but listen, man, because you're a part of Grubhub, because you are a decent dude, you know what I mean? Like, I'd be willing to have a conversation about maybe using the platform, right? Hand to God. Dude texts me last week and is like, hey, man, when would be a good time to talk about Grubhub? And I'm like, I don't know, man, maybe maybe this week, right? Mm -hmm. 15 minutes later, three Grubhub drivers show up at my fucking bar looking for food that I never okayed to cook, looking for food that I never said that I would, right? And I hit the dude back up and I'm like, yo, actually check that. We're never doing that. Grubhub can get fucked forever. Uh, and like, don't ever call me again. Not even for friendly shit. Yeah. 
Yeah, they were doing that in San Francisco and they just, uh, well, California, and they just got a law passed to outlaw that finally. So they can't put, they can't put a restaurant on their platform without having an actual agreement in place in the state of California anyways. What a novel fucking concept. I know, I know. But I appreciate you doing this. Uh, yeah. We'll probably see you in a couple of weeks. I think we're going to come up there because we haven't tried Baroni yet. So yeah, do come on. Pop in. Well, if you want to, if you want to do that, if you want to do that, then just fucking. If you're going to pop up, bring whatever leftovers you have. And if you want to do a, if you want to do a video thing or an inside Baroni thing, we can do that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we'll we'll figure that out. It'll probably be a, a couple of weeks, and I'll do some editing and whatever. let you know when this comes out too. So. But yeah, we'll definitely do yeah, it again. Maybe. I got more stuff for you. Like I said, really appreciate it. Uh, everybody check out Bar Oni. And that's Matthew Spinner, who's uh, running everything up there. And we'll talk to you soon. Cheers, man. Thanks so much. Thanks again to Matt Spinner for coming on the podcast. I know I had to pester him quite a bit to get it set up and everything, but really glad that he was able to come on. Again, make sure you check out their website, but they're open like Wednesday through Sunday, six to kind of whenever, bar close, 10 or midnight. It's a cool spot and it's good food. You know, I haven't had the the stuff at Baroni, but Ushabu was really good if it didn't close. Like, I mean, it'd be, you know, one of my all-time favorite restaurants just from the experiences that, that we had there. So I'm really excited to go to Baroni. I just hang out, maybe have a Japanese highball or something and eat a bunch of eat a bunch of good food. So shout out to him. Check out all their stuff. Uh Roast Base Killer on Instagram, Baroni Conforti, which is the Italian kind of delivery concept, takeout and delivery concept that they launched. Uh David Kokab, who's like they were kind of co-executive chefs at Shabu and then when they switched to Baroni, they were doing that. And now CoCab had launched um, 40, which is like right next door. They took over just a, a vacant kind of restaurant space. So that just started in January. So the food looks really good. I haven't had it, but I'm going to see if when we go to Baroni, if we can do like a to-go order of Italian and then hopefully, because Italian's pretty easy to like kind of just reheat. So I'm hoping like we'll be able to order some stuff from there and just bring it home with us back to Columbus and then just like eat the next day and just to be able to try it. So looking forward to all that. Make sure you check out the the website, constantly updating new stuff. I mean, there's a Zahav page up there. Uh, the Gray, I think, is up there now. A new ramen place out of New Jersey. There's going to be a page on that up there. Annie Ramen, which is really good. Uh, just check it out. There's always new chefs, and I'm constantly tinkering with it, trying to make it you know easier for using click-through and stuff like that. So make sure you check out all the past podcast episodes. Like I said, this is the fourth one we've done for chefs and guests. So we did uh, Jake Clevin of Cleaver here in Columbus, Kevin Wang, who has the private sushi catering and he's also working on opening a, a restaurant in cleveland and then jacob inscore who's formerly of commune here but he's moving to new york and the fourth one here was was this one matt spinner of baroni i'm not sure who will be next yet got a few people kind of circling so hopefully be able to continue kind of doing this i really enjoy doing this I think it's really cool that these guys are, are willing to come on and kind of talk about their experiences throughout the industry. And, you know, these are don't go to chain restaurants, go to these places. These are the people that are cooking your food and care and they give a shit. It's just awesome to be able to kind of talk to some of these guys and kind of get some insight as to, you know, how they got into the industry, why they stayed in the industry, you know, what they think of it now and, and all that stuff. So there's a bunch more people I'd love to have on just just you know, trying to set some stuff up. Obviously, everybody's real busy with the pandemic. You know, you're trying to keep your business afloat. Wants me to do this podcast. Like what? So it's been awesome so far. Hopefully they, you know, we were able to get a bunch more people on and love doing it. Check out everything, Instagram, all that stuff. And we'll, uh, we'll talk to you guys next week.